Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to David Adger of Queen Mary University of London about his book, A Syntax of Substance. What are nouns? It's easy not to reflect too hard on what they actually are and how they differ from verbs. David tackles this question in his book, as well as others that are just as fundamental to the way we think about syntax. In this interview, we talk about the differences between nouns and verbs, and the evidence for this difference from a variety of languages, in particular Scottish Gaelic. After outlining the theoretical machinery deployed in order to account for these facts, we then move on to discuss the status of hierarchies of functional categories and the implications of this new syntactic system for cross-linguistic variation, grammaticalization, and the evolution of language. I'm talking to Professor David Adger from Queen Mary, London, about his book, A Syntax of Substance. David, a lot of our listeners will remember you as the author of textbooks like Core Syntax. Could you tell us a bit about your career so far? Yeah, I did my undergraduate, my master's, and then my PhD all in Edinburgh, actually. Kind of in not just linguistics, but in linguistics with artificial intelligence and with cognitive science. So that's always been an interest of mine. And then I moved to York, where I took up a lecturer position there, and that's actually where I wrote Core Syntax because I was teaching quite a bit of syntax at the time. But also, I, while I was there, I got new connections, I guess, with uh, various researchers who were around. And that kind of sparked off lots of different kinds of interests that connected to um, what I was thinking about in terms of syntax. So I worked with George Tsoulas there on uh, the fundamental basis of minimalism. I also began to do quite a lot of work on Scottish Gaelic, which I did some work on in my thesis, uh, especially with Gillian Ramchand, um, who was in Oxford at the time. And I spent some time at MIT uh, as a visiting researcher, where uh, I began to work with Daniel Harbour on the morphology syntax interface. And also while I was at York, I, I worked with uh, Jennifer Smith, who is a sociolinguist on um, something which had been puzzling me since my thesis, which is sort of basically the nature of optionality. And the sort of question of how a single individual can have multiple options in their grammars. So all of those kinds of things were things that were established while I was in York. But then I moved to Queen Mary and basically started to pursue each of those different kinds of strands. But I think that they all seem to be slowly coming together, actually. And some of them have come together in this particular book, especially the issue about optionality the work on Gaelic and the kind of concern with what nature, the fundamental theoretical precepts of minimalist syntax really are. So, yeah, and since I've been here in Queen Mary, I've, I've been building up the department along with all of my colleagues here, trying to continue the work connecting uh, minimalism with sociolinguistics and trying to continue the work on the morphology syntax interface and the semantic syntax interface and looking at, you know, how the fundamental bits and pieces of minimalist theory hold together. And I guess that last thing, actually, weirdly, uh, a lot of that stems from my core syntax book, where when you write a big book about syntax, you end up finding there are lots of things you don't understand yourself. And quite a few of the problems that are left over in that book are things that have, in a sense, ended up in this current book. This particular book, you mention in the preface that it wasn't particularly intended to be a book in the first place. How did it come about? It was really intense. I mean, I had a bunch of papers I was working on. Um, I had a, a Leverhulme-funded major research fellowship to look at syntax semantics interface in Scottish Gaelic, and I'd done quite a bit of descriptive work on that. So I published a few papers, really just sort of talking about the syntax and morphology of Scottish Gaelic. And one of the things that come up during the fieldwork I'd done during that Leverhulme research fellowship was a bunch of issues in the syntax of noun phrases that I just got perplexed by. So 
One of them was a sort of contradiction in how the Scottish Gaelic noun phrase works, which is that the noun comes first and everything else coming after it, more or less. And the standard view of that is there's a head movement story. So the noun starts off low in the structure and raises up high in the structure. So that was the normal view, and that seemed to contradict or be contradicted by some data I was looking at with respect to coordination. And that just became puzzling to me. And connected to that, there were some issues to do with when I was looking at possessors and other kinds of prepositional phrases that are around inside the noun phrase, there was just some weird judgments I was getting that seemed very systematic and very stable, but didn't really follow from any kind of uh, standard view of the noun phrase structure in Celtic languages. So that was one paper I was working on. And then there was another paper which kind of emerged really from some work that I've been doing with Daniel Harbour. We published a book with Laurel Watkins on free word order in Kiowa with Cambridge University Press in 2009. And one of the conclusions uh, we came to was that you didn't want to deal with all of these complexities of word order through using roll-up movements, which is uh, one of the views that had been popular in the literature at the time. And we we used instead a set of ideas that came from Michi Brody's work uh, in mirror theory. And that allowed us to capture some of the uh, weirdnesses that we were finding in Kiowa at the time. And I was very taken with this view of things. It, it seemed to both give a really neat way of dealing with head movement problems and at the same time uh, seem to allow you to do away with the roll-up movements that we'd shown independently didn't work. So I was really interested in developing that view more. But one of the things I didn't like about it is that Brody has a very, very representational view of things. So I was thinking about how to translate some of those insights into a more standard minimalist derivational view. So those are the two different papers that I was working on, and they just both grew and grew. And then I realized that I was thinking so much about the, the Brody-esque way of doing things, my version of that, that I really wanted to do the analysis of Gallic noun phrases like that. And I realized that actually that would provide some empirical motivation for the theoretical developments I was uh, working on. So they kind of, they, they wouldn't leave each other alone, in a sense. And it's weird, you take two papers, and you try and put them together, and it turns out to be much bigger than two papers, in a sense because you need to motivate why you're pulling them together. And that's why it ended up being essentially a book. And the weird thing was that what I thought was going to be a very small little chapter that would be hardly anything uh, that would connect to actually ended up being the biggest chapter in the book, which is the third chapter, which which actually it kind of almost wrote itself. It just sort of pulled these two things together in a very uh, satisfying way. So the book ended up being much longer than I'd planned it to be, but you know, I'm, and it's still far too short. There's so many unanswered questions that this still leaves open and things that I wish I'd actually had a bit more time to, to develop a bit further. The title is The Syntax of Substance. What is substance in this approach? What does substance mean? <laughs> so the title is A Syntax of Substance, and it was Daniel Harbour that pointed out to me it really should be A and not the. So I have to just throw in that correction. Ooh, sorry. In case Daniel ever listens to this. Um, he, he claims one functional category out of that title. I mean, I think, so there's an old sort of philosophical Aristotelian idea that there's a real distinction between things on the one hand and predicates on the other. That is that so it's known in the literature as the difference between particulars and universals, really. And that is an idea that's sort of generally lost in standard Montegovian ways of approaching the syntax-semantics interface. In that view, you tend to sit, take nouns, for example, to be predicates, the predicates of individuals. And that's their fundamental basis, they're really predicates. But this Aristotelian idea takes nouns to really be about things. When I say thing, that's what I mean by substance, right? Just, you know, stuff that you can touch, that thing. Obviously, that's overly naive because you can't touch all nouns, right? You can't touch the demotata of nouns. That's the intuition. And I really like that intuition. And I think there's something really correct about it that actually comes from some of the work that I did with Gillian Ramchand on predication and especially nominal predication in Scottish Gaelic. We published an LI article about that back, oh gosh, a decade ago now, I guess. And I think there are real asymmetries in how nouns behave in predicative structures 
and how other categories behave in predicate structures. My gut instinct is that the way to capture that is to say that nouns are just different beasts from predicates. They're not predicates, fundamentally. You can make them into predicates by doing syntactic stuff, but fundamentally they're not. Now, that would mean that the development of nominal extended projection, so the, the way that you kind of build up from a noun into a larger noun phrase, a nominal phrase, is the development of something which is substantial. I mean, something which is substance at heart, and you develop that into something which can then be used to infer or quantify or whatever, rather than it being a predicate at heart. So that, that's the sense in which I'm thinking about substance here. And actually, an early draft of the book attempted to develop a sort of semantics of this syntactic theory that I put together here, which runs along those lines. In fact, there's a footnote somewhere where I kind of mentioned that. But in the end, it seemed to me that that was just too orthogonal to the other points I was going to make. And it would, one, take far too long to develop, and two, I didn't really feel it. I mean, you could run the story I wanted to run without necessarily doing that. However, something of that does definitely remain in the book, which is that nouns are treated in the book as predicates of individuals, um, so as predicates of substance, stuff, mm-hmm. as opposed to predicates of, say, situations or events, which is what verbs and actually other things are as well. So that idea still remains there. And, and I think that there is a fundamental thing that's at the heart of the book, which is that nouns are quite different from verbs and how they connect with their putative arguments, or at least there's a certain lack to nouns in the sense that they can't be predicates in the same way as other things can be. And that definitely comes through in the book in terms of how I treat what other people think of as arguments to nouns. So this emerges in the book as ogre, right? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) one of my acronyms, yes. Could Could you then explain ogre? So ogre is just a, it's just a generalization. Um, it's not my generalization, really. I think that many people have noticed this over the years. It stands for the optionality generalization for relational expressions. And all it means is there's a systematic fact about how nouns connect with things that you would intuitively or pre-theoretically want to say were their arguments, which is that nouns always, at least I argue always, have optional arguments, whereas verbs are idiosyncratic in whether their arguments are optional or obligatory. So there's a real distinction there, which it it doesn't just hold in English. I think it holds in all languages, which is that nouns, putative arguments are always optional, whereas verbs, they can state whether their arguments are optional or obligatory and are you know, obligatorily, there's no argument there. And that struck me as something very strong with cross-linguistic generalization that under the standard Montegovian view, which is that nouns are predicates in the same way as verbs or adjectives or whatever are predicates, that just doesn't follow in any obvious way from that standard view. You need to say something extra. And people have noticed this before. So Rappaport and uh, Higginbotham and certain extent Grimshaw Although Grimshaw wouldn't completely agree with me, I don't think, and Zubazaretta as well. This is this distinction between nouns and verbs. But the way I deal with it is I just, it's a little bit like the way that Higginbotham does. I say nouns just don't have any semantic arguments, not that are realizable. I mean, the extent that they might have entailments of, you know, other entities around, uh, when you say something, even then I don't really buy that. But they certainly don't have arguments in the same way that verbs do. Mm, right. So things like kinship terms, like mother and father, where you have to be the mother of someone or the father mm. of someone. How do you deal with those in the book? So I think there's a, a view which says, oh, look, this noun or this verb entails something else to be existing when you use it. And therefore, that thing is an argument of that noun or verb or whatever. And I think that that's just a wrong assumption. Um, entailment is entailment, and it's a completely distinct thing from whether there's an argument present or not. So the fact that to be a mother, you have to be the mother of someone, is as irrelevant to the argument structure of mother as, you know, when you say an amoeba has to have a, a cell membrane or something, and mm-hmm. therefore, you know, is cell membrane an entailment of amoeba? No. 
I mean, so so there's a, a sense in which entailment, lexical entailment, is, if not orthogonal, at least not determinate of whether something has an argument or not. Now, there is a question then about, is it the case that syntactically kinship nouns require an argument? Well, that's, there are clear counterexamples to that. So if I say, you know, Mary is a mother, right? You don't need to say Mary is a mother of three daughters or something. You can just say Mary is a mother, okay? Now, you might say, well, there's maybe some other stuff going on there. And what about cases like, you know, an uncle fell down the stairs or something like that? That seems a bit weird just to say an uncle fell down the stairs. But in the book, what I argue is that that weirdness is not the same as the weirdness of if I say, you know, I hit, right, where you drop the complement of hit. It's a different kind of weirdness. And I think what it's got to do with is the kinship nouns kind of have a pragmatic requirement that comes with them, which says something along the lines of, I've got to be easily identifiable. So if you give a kinship noun an argument, that makes it very easily identifiable, okay? But this is a pragmatic requirement, not a requirement about the syntax semantics interface. And you, I guess some examples in the book show that if you manipulate discourse context, then it becomes very, very easy to have these kinship nouns with no syntactic argument present. So putting all of that together, that allows you to say essentially that even kinship nouns in English, which look like the most relational of relational terms, really don't have arguments present at the syntax-semantics interface as a requirement of their lexical specification. And that seems to be different from what verbs do. So, you know, if I just said, I hit yesterday, there's something syntactically wrong with that. Mm. And you can get around that by doing various kinds of things. You can have generic uh, operators binding null pronouns and stuff like that. But basically, there's a fundamental distinction there. So I think that there are no relational nouns, actually. Nouns just denote substance, right? They just denote stuff directly. They never denote relations or any higher order elements than that. There is, of course, a question about what happens with nominalizations. So when you've got a verb, you turn it into a noun. Does that noun end up having arguments? And that is a question I don't really address in the book. And I've left it aside because I'm not yet, I don't really yet understand how nominalizations work. It could be the case that there is a VP inside a nominalization. That's what Borer has argued, for example. And in that case, all of the normal VP requirements for things to be there would hold. And that would be consistent, of course, with Grimshaw's earlier work, which argues that event interpretations of nominals do have obligatory arguments. So I concentrated in the book not on nominalizations, but on ultra-nominal nouns, nouns that are not events in any sense. And for those simple nouns, I think it's very straightforward. I think that the arguments are very compelling that they don't have arguments as part of their lexical specification. Staying with noun phrases then, in chapter four, you talk about something called the PP peripherality generalization. Mm. Could you explain that? Yeah. So the PP peripherality generalization is a generalization which I have not typologically tested, but I've not yet found obvious counterexamples to. Well, I mean, let, let me come back to that in a second. There are some interesting counterexamples. So PP peripherality says, when you've got an intersective adjective, like, you know, green or, or something like that, and also adjectives like big, mm-hmm. um, they are in closer constituency with noun than putative arguments of that noun, which appears prepositional phrases. Like if you said something like a big picture of Mary, your linguistics 101 would tell you that it's really picture of Mary, and then you apply big to that. And what I've been arguing for is really that what you've got is big picture, and that's constituent, and then of Mary is then applied to that. If that's correct, then you expect to see whenever you have both the adjective phrase and the preposition phrase on the same side of the noun, that the adjective phrase should come closer to the noun because it's in syntactic constituency with it. Right? So that means that if you had a language which uh, had everything after the noun, like Scottish Gaelic, for example, you'd expect to see picture big of Mary, and you wouldn't expect to see picture of Mary big. And that seems to be true of nine initial languages. In the book, I go through a bunch of different uh, language families which have nine initial nine phrases, and in all of them, you see you get noun, adjective phrase, preposition phrase. That's 
interesting, right? That you don't find noun, prepositional phrase, adjective phrase, which you would expect to find if adjective phrases are external to a constituent, which is the N and the PP. So that's what you find in initial languages. And I didn't test this to such great extent, but you find a very similar thing in noun final languages. You tend to find PP, AP, N. Actually, it's more interesting than that. I'm not sure that there are any PPs in noun phrases in noun final languages. They look weird. They don't look like normal PPs, many of these things. That's another project. That's something to look at in more depth. So what PP peripherality says is, as a general typological generalization, simply that within a noun phrase, when you have both the adjective phrase and the prepositional phrase on the same side of the noun, the adjective phrase will come closer to the noun, and so the prepositional phrase will be peripheral. And in general, that's true. Where it's not true tends to be in situations where you have a focused adjective phrase or a heavy adjective phrase. So you see this in languages like Spanish or in Hebrew, not in all languages, interestingly, but in certain languages, what you get is those heavy or focused adjectival phrases can come to the right of the prepositional phrase. But those are in marked special orders. And so I take them not to be a threat to the PP peripherality generalization, because that's a generalization about how structure emerges in order, rather than about extra particularities about how focus works or how headiness works. But what's quite interesting is that actually, even in nine initial languages, and this is something I don't understand yet, there are differences in whether the adjective focused or heavy can ever come after the preposition phrase. So I just said that in uh, Romance languages, it generally can, and in Semitic languages, it generally can. In Polynesian languages, like Hawaiian, it can't. And in Celtic languages, like Gaelic or Welsh, again, it can't. So actually, there's something more to be said about when this this way of using focus to get around PP peripherality can happen, which is yet further grist in the mill, that it's an extra kind of thing going on there. In terms of the other direction, I think there are also cases where you find in head final languages, nine final languages, you also find adjective phrases outside, that is, to to the uh, left this time, of the prepositional phrases. Now, actually, one of my PhD students, David Hall, is having a good look at this at the moment, and Ak Nailman, one of his students, has been working on the same question. He has a very different take on it than I do. And we're looking at whether those cases where you have AP, PP, N structures, whether those can be analysed as the AP moving to that higher position or perhaps the AP being some kind of reduced relative or a mixture of both of them. But what we don't seem to find, as far as I can tell anyway, with N final languages is N final languages where, in a sense, the basic order is AP, PP, N. Again, something which would be utterly surprising on the standard linguistics 101 view of noun phrase structure, which takes the prepositional complement to be closer to the noun than any adjectival modifier. So I take PP peripherality in its general correctness to be at least a fairly strong indicative argument as to the structure of noun phrases, which says that adjective phrases within side noun phrases are closer to their noun than prepositional phrases are, even complements. And that forces you into saying that the apparent argument, as I say apparent, of course, the apparent argument of a noun has to be introduced quite far away from that noun rather than being introduced essentially as its sister, which is what one would expect under standard views of how heads connect with their arguments. Another thing that comes in here is genitives, particularly mm-hmm. with regard to Scottish Gaelic. Could you explain how the genitives fit into the picture? Yeah, so um, my take on genitives is not a massively weird one. I think that there's a fairly reasonable consensus that at least some possessors, let's call them possessors, are introduced, connected to the noun phrase at, at some lowish level, quite high up, as I just said, but quite at some lowish level, and then can move into a higher position, which would be the genitive position, which I take to be the specifier of D, actually, of the, of the determiner phrase. And I think that's a, that's a view which is similar to views that are Canian or come from Anna Savalchi's work and various other people's work. Scottish Gaelic's particularly interesting 
Because what Scottish Gaelic does is it allows you to introduce possessors or to have possessors syntactically both as prepositional phrases and as genitals. Okay? So what you, you get, if you want to say David's cat in Scottish Gaelic, you get either the cat at David or you get something like cat David's, where David's there would be genitals. So you get these two structures. The, the possessor is always after the noun. So in one case, it's a prepositional phrase. In the other case, it's a genital. And the story that I have for that is that actually there's a piece of functional structure which introduces the semantics of different kinds of possessors and actually different kinds of complements as well. So what this does is it essentially says, here's a little functional category coming in, and I'm saying... I have one argument. I'm a functional category. I can have an argument. And my argument is the possessor. And my other argument, in a sense, is the noun phrase. Okay? The, the head noun. So you get something like for um, the cat at David, really that's at, in a sense, taking David as one argument and cat as another and saying that there's a possessive relation holding between them. Now, you get different kinds of relations here. So you get possessive relations for that one. But if you think about nouns like picture, then you get a depiction relation, right? So if you say the picture of Lily, then in English, that means that the picture depicts Lily, okay? It, or similarly with statue. The statue of Lily, the statue in a sense depicts Lily. But if you had something like the top of the table, then in a sense what top there does is, is it takes part of the table, right? So these different kinds of way. I mean, in English, they're all of phrases. And in Romance languages, you get D or D or something, or D or something like that. In Gaelic, you get a fair differentiation of the number of the different kinds of prepositions you can use for this. And Norwegian's crazy. Norwegian, like, basically distinguishes lots and lots of different ways in which the argument can be connected to its apparent noun head through different prepositions. So my view is that Really, in a sense, the argument introducing head here is the preposition, okay? And then for some of these elements, for some of the arguments of those prepositions, the possessors, they get to move into some higher position, and in that higher position, they end up being genitive. And what this predicts correctly, I think, is that the semantics of genitives is a superset of the semantics of all of the various prepositional elements that a language allows, plus perhaps some more. And that is, a, so if you say that basically what's happening is that the possessor or the part or the depiction or whatever, all of those things are introduced low down, low-ish down, higher than adjectives, but low-ish down via prepositional phrase. And then they can raise away into a higher position uh, and be genitive. Then you can see how you could raise from either a part prepositional phrase or a possessor prepositional phrase or a depiction prepositional phrase or a kin prepositional phrase and so on up into the genitive position. And the genitive then has no inherent meaning of its own. Instead, what it does is it gets its meaning from the foot of whatever the movement chain is there. And that predicts that the genitive will then have all of the meanings that are available lower down in the structure, which I think follows from this system and seems to be correct. Thank you. Let's move on to some of the bigger questions that are raised by the whole new system, because this really is, in the early part of the book, a whole new way of doing syntax, and some of the assumptions are quite alien from from what would usually be assumed in minimalism. For instance, in classic minimalism, you've got merge. Merge puts together two different syntactic objects, that's why your trees are always binary. But in this book, we get unary branching trees. How does that happen? Quite a lot of unary branching, in fact, yeah. So, so the simple way that happens is, I mean, you're right, what merge does is merge is a binary operation, it takes two elements, and it combines them into a larger set of containing those two elements, right? Merge is, is stated typically in set theoretic terms, And once you state merge and set theoretic terms, in order to get the binary trees, you need to put in a statement that says, and the two elements better not be the same. Mm. Right? Because in classical set theory, if you take two things that are the same, let's, let's take the number three and let's take the number three again. And then we merge, create a set containing those two distinct things. Both of them are the number three. Then what we get is a set containing just the number three with cardinality one, okay? 
So that's the way the standard set theory works. Now, if we take seriously the view that merge is set theoretic, okay, now we don't need to take that seriously, but imagine we did, mm-hmm. then it simply follows that if you allow merge to be set theoretic, you better disallow taking two, two things the same if you want to maintain binary branching. And what I say is, well, let's just get rid of that stipulation that you need to make in the definition of merge and say, just merge anything you like, including two things that are the same, which immediately gives you a set of cardinality one, which you can think of as a unary branching tree, right? It's got one element inside it, but it's a larger structure containing that one element. So I think if you simplify the definition of merge by removing the ban against merging the same thing, then you automatically get self-merge. That is, you automatically get a structure which can be represented as a unary branching tree. Again, I'm not the first person to say this. So Guimarães pointed this out a long, long time ago, and Kane in one of his papers makes the same point. But they only they, they use it essentially to solve a problem for the LCA, for the linear correspondence axiom, which won't order the lowest part of the tree, right? So the LCA, if you merge two things into, into a single unit in a bare phrase structure kind of way, then they're unordered by the LCA, which should immediately chuck that tree out. Hmm. So what, what Kane and Guimarães do is they say, well, let's just say that the root of all trees is unary branching. You merge the same thing. And then from that point, you've now got something that you can merge ahead to. And you've got a head phrase asymmetry, and then the LCA is fine. The LCA is happy. So they use that unary branching just for the first step. I just use it for everything. I just allow um, trees to, to branch in this unary branching fashion using self-merge, where we merge the same thing, wherever it wants to do that. Right? And the reason I do that is actually this is something that emerged from writing core syntax. Years ago when I wrote core syntax, I became really unhappy with what I saw as the only really available way to order the functional categories in an extended projection, right? Which, and what people typically did, and what I did in the very, very first edition, of edition, the very first draft of course syntax, is I used selection. I said, you know, oh, D selects num, num selects N, or little v selects big V, and say T selects little v, and C selects T. Then if you think to yourself, what is that selection? Right? It doesn't look like selection as we standardly understand it. Because, for example, you can have things like negation in between T and little v. So, and we can have aspect in between T and little v. And we can have progressive between T and little v. So that essentially means that you need to specify the selectional requirements of T as T can select either neg or prog or pass or perf or little v. Which is really hideous, right? It's just ugly. So I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't like that. And the, the solution I had to that in core syntax was I'll just stipulate the order. Just stipulate this, I called it a hierarchy of projections. Now, at exactly the same time, other people were coming to this view. Well, actually, slightly before me, um, Michael Starke in his thesis had come to a very similar uh, view on entirely different grounds where he essentially said, look, you need to independently stipulate the sequence of functional categories, you call it FSEC, and you have a, a, a functional sequence that needs to be independently stipulated anyway. And actually, Edwin Williams, in his representation theory book, had come to a very similar conclusion that standard selection is not the same as the selectional relationship between functional categories. And actually, I think Jane Grimshaw probably was the first person to say this in her extended projections paper way back in the early 90s. And that paper was a huge influence on me. I was actually at the LSA Institute where Grimshaw taught that extended projection paper. It was funny, I remember her saying, oh, I'm meant to be teaching you about normalizations, but I've been working on this instead. And she Mm -hmm. taught this amazing class on extended projection. And it was just beautiful. And that class has really influenced me all the way through all the things I've done. And it emerged in my core syntax textbook as this hierarchy of projections. So essentially, you've got a bunch of different people saying, independently, we need to state the hierarchy of functional categories within an extended projection. It needs to be stated independently. Doing it via selection is a really bad way of doing it. it makes everything really ugly. So why don't we just state it? And that's... So once you... And what, uh, 
I am getting back to self-merge, right? But once you do that, once you just state it and you say, okay, well, we need to state this hierarchy of projections, and you say self-merge is available giving you unary branching uh, structures, we can just put those two things together and say, okay, well, what that means is that we can divorce labeling, that is, the hierarchy of projections, we can divorce labeling entirely from structure building. So what you do is you use merge to build your structures, and you go and look elsewhere and find out what the labels of those structures are. And uh, once you do that, why do you need to have a functional head? Uh, you, then you don't need to have binary branching, in fact, because you, your labels are given independently. And again, that's an idea that's in Michael Starker's work, and it's rather, I mean, he deals with it rather differently than I do, but it's the same basic underlying intuition that essentially you can have the labeling done outside of the introduction of functional heads, which means you can get rid of functional heads, which is what I did. Mm. This is what makes the trees look weird. Mm. Which, again, is a pretty drastic move for uh, a field of minimalism used to having all of these functional heads in the lexicon behaving like other lexical items. Yeah, but they don't, right? I mean, so, you know, functional heads are really distinct from other lexical items. There's an enormous amount of, uh, of psychological evidence that they behave distinctly. They behave distinctly in acquisitions um, from the major lexical categories. There's an immense frequency difference between them. So each functional head has a very small number of elements, right? Mm-hmm. And they occur very, very, very frequently. Whereas each lexical category has a huge number of elements, each one of which barely occurs. So, you know, in a sense, functional categories are like the, and everyone says this, they're the core of what syntax is all about, um, with the lexical items just fleshing out the functional structure. I mean, that's again, that's sort of an idea which is, is very strong in Hagit Borer's work, where she has this exoskeletal view, you know, you've got the functional categories doing all the syntactic work, and you really just flesh out the meanings with these lexical categories. And I think that, you know, there's a very, very strong set of reasons, even within minimalism, to say that functional categories are different things from lexical categories. Now, the way I do it is particularly radical because I say lexical categories are lexical items and they are involved in building structure. Functional categories for me are not lexical items. They, they don't build structure. They're not involved in building structure. All they do is label structure, which is built essentially out of merges, you know, lexical categories. So, you know, I think that it might look radical, but I, I think that we want some radicalism here because Functional categories are quite distinct from lexical categories. They behave differently in many, many ways. And our current theory, well, it does have a way of dealing with that in a sense. It says that lexical categories are low down and functional categories are higher up. But kind of ontologically, there are similar things, right? They, mm. they are categories that are inputs to merge. They're kind of the same metaphysical beast. And I think that we want to say that well, let's explore whether we can get away with saying they're quite distinct things and that functional categories are categories, but they're never heads. They're never lexical items. And that, I think, melds well with this unary branching view and with this view that you need to state independently the hierarchy of those functional categories. Coming back to that then, if we need to state it independently... I mean, this is a very big question that I think a lot of people have talked about, but do you think it follows from anything? Can we get it to follow from other considerations? Depends what you mean by follow. I think you can get... Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think this is one of the major tasks for linguistics now, is to figure out what answers there are available to this question. My gut instinct is that it's about computation. So let's go back now to the notion of substance. Imagine we're talking about, say, we've got a world, and that world consists of ping pong balls. Okay? And mm-hmm. they're, they're different colours. Some are green and some are red, say. And I want to say, these four green ping pong balls are dented, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you imagine that what we're really trying to do with that is we're trying to identify a particular where that particular consists of these four green ping pong balls, let's compute how we we best do that. If we decided to take, first of all, 
go like, okay, we've got ping pong balls. Now what I'm going to do is randomly select sets of four first, right? So I randomly select lots of sets of four of things. And then I say, okay, now I want just the green ones, right? So I discard all of the uh, ones that are not just green. Now that's an algorithm that would get you four green ping pong balls. And maybe you want to say at that point, and now I've got like, you know, a bunch of sets of four green ping pong balls. I want to pick out these ones. Okay. But if you did it the other way around, you said something like, okay, I'm just going to select all the green ones. Now I've got all the green ones in hand and I just want to take four of those. Then in a sense, I don't need to backtrack when I'm doing that second task in the same way as I do when I'm doing the first task. Now, this is very intuitive, but I think that that kind of computational complexity of the computation that's involved, in this case, identifying the four green balls, might be something that's, in a sense, what's reified into natural language syntax is the least computationally complex way of doing that task. That's an utter intuition, right? Because obviously, we don't just identify when we're saying for green balls, right? We could be describing things, we could be you know, positing things, we're not just identifying. And the argument wouldn't run through, really, unless you were just identifying. So this is a really a very indicative kind of way of thinking. But I've got a feeling that really what's going on is that natural language has, in a sense, frozen in place the computationally more simple ways of ordering functional categories for some particular kind of computational task. That's my hunch. And I think you could probably get at it experimentally by looking at non-linguistic creatures. So crows, for example, are really great at counting. And maybe you could look at how crows can do different computational tasks. Uh, maybe at pre-linguistic infants. I've, I've no idea, but I think you could probably get at what counts as more computationally simple to do a particular task. And then that might give us a, uh, an understanding of why the function sequence or the extended projections or whatever you want to call them are ordered in the way they're ordered. That's what I would like to be the case. And so that would help in saying that this functional sequence is not just an arbitrary fact about language. Exactly. Maybe it follows from other aspects of cognition or... There needs to be some arbitrariness to it in as much as we don't use every antecedently available conceptual distinction that we have in our cognitive system within functional categories, right? Hmm. Uh, This is the point that I think was first made by Givon a long, long time ago, but you know, I, I make it all the time to my syntax classes and I think most syntacticians point out the interestingness of this, the fact that things like dangerous or not dangerous, although incredibly useful uh, concepts, don't tend to find themselves turning into functional categories. You don't agree with something for its dangerousness, for example. Mm. And, and also things like colour. Sure, colour seems to be ordered at some level. You might actually, you know, we might say, Color is ordered with respect to these other kinds of things in the functional, in say other adjectives, but we don't tend to again find agreement for color. So I think that there are certain kind of things that don't appear in the grammar itself, and so there must be a certain amount of arbitrariness to this process of what antecedently available conceptual distinctions are made. Are, are turned into pieces of grammar, are turned into essentially labels of functional categories. So there's some arbitrariness to it, but I think that the ordering is not arbitrary. I think we don't understand the ordering yet. I think it's maybe much simpler than we give it credit for. So I think maybe there's some interesting work by an old student of mine from when I was in New York, Johnny Butler, who argued that epistemic models and root models are the same thing, fundamentally, they're just finding themselves at different points in the functional sequence. And I think, I mean, Chinkwe says something similar to this, and Gillian Ramchand has some recent work in modality, which also says something, again, something kind of similar to that. So, you know, I think that we can probably reduce the complexity of the functional sequence, and we can probably tie down aspects of its ordering to then computational questions like the ones I sketched out, or perhaps perhaps different kinds of computations to do with scope, 
I mean, I think that we can probably, and this is a big research agenda, we can probably simplify the functional sequence away from its massive complexity, which is where it's at just now with all the working cartography, down to something which looks a little bit more tractable in terms of where we can understand why it's ordered in that way. But you think that some of it will have to be captured in terms of an arbitrary statement of hierarchy? I don't think the ordering necessarily has to be captured via some arbitrary statement of hierarchy. I think that which categories are in the set of computable labels, the set of labels you can apply to bits and functions, those, that has to be arbitrary to a certain extent, right? You know what I mean? Right. Because we don't use every antecedently available concept. So some things are in there, tense, modality, force, quantification, counting. These are all in there. Things like dangerousness, olfactory properties, all those kinds of things are not in there. Hmm. So there's some sense of arbitrary selection going on. But I think the hierarchy, once you've made the selection, is probably determined by issues of computational efficiency of calculating the meanings of these things. And I think the hierarchy is simpler than it looks because I think there's reuse of different parts of the hierarchy in different positions. That comes from that work I mentioned before, Butler, Cinque, mm-hmm. and most recently, um, Ramchad and Spinonius' uh, attempt to do that. So I think that, you know, the sequence is simpler than you think. Its hierarchy is probably reducible to computational properties that are external to language but what things are in there, I think, are are arbitrary to a certain extent, yeah. Right. Let's talk about labelling, because this is another area in which this book diverges from the original Chomskyan ideas in minimalism. Could you explain how you do labelling in this book and how it differs from the Chomskyan idea? Yeah, I mean, so the Chomskyan idea just basically says the label of the more complex structure that's built up by merge from two simpler structures is dependent on what that more complex structure contains. That's like the old idea of endocentricity to a certain extent, right? How do we get that label? Well, Chomsky's basic algorithm says, look for the head. There's always an asymmetry in these structures. Well, that's a question, actually. Mm -hmm. There's always asymmetry. Let's assume there's always asymmetry. And then once we've got asymmetry, we look at the thing which has got no further structure to it, that is the head, right? That will give you the label. And then Chomsky has uh, a set of other ways of dealing with what happens when that doesn't hold. So in the most recent uh, work, he essentially generalizes a proposal of Moro's, which says in a two-symmetrical structure where you can't identify the, the head, you move something away so that then you can identify the head. Right? And Chomsky uses that in a fairly intricate way timing it with respect to how phases and things like that works in order to actually capture some very interesting facts, must be said. So that's how his system works. Chomsky's system, then, is really about projection of category very, very locally, right? It is not about the ordering of functional categories with respect to each other. It's only about, once you've got some head, how the information within the projection of that head is calculated. Okay, in my system, there's no question. There isn't even a question that arises. The label of the structure is just given directly by the functional sequence. So I just dissolve that problem. That problem vanishes by saying, okay, independently we've got this functional sequence. And what the job of that functional sequence is to do is not to solve Chomsky style labeling problems, but really to solve the bigger problem of what's what's the hierarchy in the functional sequence, what's the hierarchy in the set of projection. That's what that does. And sort of as a side effect, because I don't have much projection, right? I basically, you know, there isn't really much head internal projection because there aren't any heads. Mm. So my labeling system really is all about something the Chomsky labeling system is not about. It's all about getting the right hierarchy of projection, the right extended projection above a root. Chomsky's labeling problem is all about once you assume a head, how does the information percolate to the projection of that head? fundamentally. So the labeling is, is quite a different thing in both of those systems. And both systems label a piece of structure. And um, for Chomsky, because he assumes there's a head there, for like, say you merge D to NP or something like that, you go like, oh, there's a head here. I've got a larger piece of structure. Let me look down. Oh, look, that head will label that larger piece of structure. But of course, I don't have a head. 
So all I do is I go off and I look in the functional sequence, and the functional sequence says the next label up is D, and the next label above that is K and whatever, right? So my system is built to solve a different problem for Chomsky's because Chomsky's problem doesn't arise in my system because I don't have any heads. Labeling then for you, and I think probably for everyone, is has to be some sort of operation that's separate from merge per se. Mm. And if it's an operation, that raises interesting questions about whether it's part of universal grammar, whether it has analogues in other domains, and how it might have evolved. Do you have any speculations about that? Okay, so um, I guess that question teases itself into a number of distinct questions, right? One of which is, how has the hierarchy evolved, say? And I think we talked about that already, right? I think Mm -hmm. that in a sense, that's a reification so actually, there's an interesting question about whether that's phylogeny or ontogeny, right? So let's take that question first. How the hierarchy evolved? I think that that's got to do with computational questions being reified into this syntactic hierarchy. Does that happen over evolutionary timescales? Or does it happen over developmental timescales? Big question. One might imagine that it actually happens over developmental timescales, this is a little bit like Yang's story. You might say that all of these possible orderings are actually available at birth. And then what happens is that some of these orderings are maybe even are, are just pruned away by thinking, effectively. Right? Mm. <laughs> you think, and so you prune away a bunch of these things because of the, comp- the computational simplicity uh, issues arise there. I don't know if that's feasible, but it, it's logically possible that actually some of that ordering could be done over developmental timescales rather than over evolutionary timescales. Or it could be over evolutionary timescales and we're all born effectively with this ordering because it's happened at some earlier point. Okay, so that's the question of evolution of the ordering of these things. The labeling mechanism itself is, for me kind of fundamental to how the structures are interpreted. So a structure with no label doesn't have any interpretation for me. So you could structure stuff, but it's not going to go anywhere. It's just going to sort of sit in your little merge module in your brain or whatever, creating these these little merge structures, but none of which are usable, right? none of which are interpretable. So unless you're able to label one of these structures, it can't be hooked up into how you think effectively. Right into this, what Chomsky calls the conceptual intentional interface. So labeling, I guess, feels to me like a separate requirement than the structure building requirement. And you can imagine structure building quite happily going along and not being usable. In fact, maybe lots of animals have it. Maybe it's just, you know, it happens all over the place, but it's just not usable in the absence of labeling. I remember uh, having this conversation with Peter Spinonius about a decade ago in a bar in Trumso at some point, that the idea would be there's not just one mutation, that is the one that Chomsky talks about, but another mutation, which is the mutation that essentially says, oh, now we can connect these structures we build to categories, categories of the language of thought, effectively. Maybe this is the language of thought, right? So there would have to be two, I mean, this again, ridiculously speculative, there would have to be two things going on, one of which creates structure, and the other one of which labels the structures, the labeling is required for you to do anything with the structures. And then maybe there's a third one, which is the externalization of these structures, uh, which is what Hauser and Chomsky and other people have speculated about again. But these are all kind of, you know, I mean, when I said I had this conversation with Peter Spinonius in a bar, it, at some level, these are conversations which are worthwhile having in bars at the moment, I'm not quite sure whether we have anything remotely concrete enough to work with to say that there are conversations that's worth having, you know, in any other way. Yeah, it's it's hard to see what the evidence would be exactly. for or against, yeah. Okay, let's talk a little bit about language variation in this type of approach, because we have at least two different lexicons, or lexica, mm-hmm. I guess, in this kind of approach. We've got the lexicon of categories, which we can say by hypothesis is universal, and a lexicon of roots, which is going to vary from language to language. Yeah. And then we also have what labels can transition to which other labels, yeah. which is language-specific. And labels, in addition, can have second-order features. Yes. So are all of those potential loci of variation? Yeah. 
so I think that those are all loci of variation, which I would assume that there is good evidence in the primary linguistic data for. If we say that there is a universal hierarchy given, right? Imagine that hierarchy contains, I don't know, honorifics in Japanese or something like that, right? The kind of honorifics you find in Japanese. I don't know if it does, but that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Something we don't obviously have in English. There are two logical views of this, right? You could say, no, those functional categories are always there. And because they're always there, you know, we don't need to say that there's any language variation there. It's just that they're not pronounced in these languages and they don't have any effects on pronunciation and maybe the their semantics is a default or something like that. So that'd be one view. I think that something like that is the view that Chinkui takes. Mm-hmm. The view that I take is that those things, I mean, I don't know if I've really got an argument for this, but the view that I take is that actually there, there are cases where functional categories are genuinely missing from languages. Right? So, I mean, it's really just a plausibility argument, which says in English, we don't have all of the things we find in all of the languages. And I mean, that's something I said way back in the 2003 textbook, right? There's options in the hierarchy of projections and uh, some languages just don't choose those options. Now, it may be the case that all languages have to choose certain things. So there may be particular categories that are not loci of variation because perhaps they're needed by the interpretive systems, right? So perhaps, you know, in order to have uh, a label for a binary merge case, you need to have a case head or something. I mean, it could be the case that there are things that are always there. Okay, that's the kind of our new intuition about case. All languages have abstract case. So perhaps there really is abstract case always present at the top of the noun phrase, for example. But then that leaves open the possibility of other functional categories not being there. Now, how does a kid learn that? Well, I take it to be the case that the kid essentially prunes away all of the possibilities that it's given by universal grammar when it's born. Again, that's the sort of Yang approach. You sort of say, I've got all of these possible grammars, all of these little, in effect, little strings of potential extended projections. And what the primary linguistic data does is it attaches probabilities to those. So they sink low or they come up high in the grammars you have. And eventually you end up with the grammar of the language that's around you. So that would be whether a functional category is available or not. They all start off being available, wherever they may be, but uh, they're kind of pruned away in a yang kind of fashion. So that's one aspect of language variation, the presence or absence of the functional category. Now, the second order features issue, this stems from some work that I did with Peter Spinonius and actually comes out of, kind of interestingly comes out of core syntax. Ash Asida and Ida uh, Teuvenen uh, did a review of core syntax in Journal of Linguistics a while back and took me to task for the laxity uh, with which I dealt with features in that book. So um, I got a bit grumpy about that and I was like, okay, so I need to get features to work properly. And I spent some time replying to them and then I did some work, which was quite influenced by uh, my colleague Daniel Harbour, but um, also by long conversations that Peter Spinonius and I had had about this about the, the sort of distinction between what typically is known in minimalism as strength or uninterpretability or this kind of stuff versus interpretable features. And it seemed to us that really what you wanted to do is to say that the kind of things that we have, which are sort of instructions to the PF interface, you know, move something to this position or pronounce this thing or don't pronounce it, are properties of features. So they're second order features. And the feature is just a property of an item, then or say a label, then these are second order properties of that label. So they're properties of features of that label. And there's not very many of these. I mean, I, in fact, I just enumerated them for you, which is essentially move something to be next to me or pronounce me here. Uh, those are basically the two kinds of properties that uh, I appeal to in the book. And I don't think there's very much more to parameterization of overt elements than that. Is the thing pronounced? If so, is it pronounced at this position in structure? Is there any other requirement for a pronounced thing to be at this position in structure, essentially in the specifier position? So those are the, I mean, that's the equivalent of head movements varying across languages and EPP varying across functional categories. 
And I think that that's all the second order features that I really need in the book as it stands. There may be other ones connected to interpretation. I haven't really thought about this in any great depth, but issues to do with the difference between, say, specificity and definiteness or uh, stuff like that that may have an impact upon the interpretation of these heads as opposed to their pronunciation. But I think that there's pretty limited set of second order features that can reside upon a functional category. So that there are actually quite strong limits then on variation. Although they can give rise to quite a lot of surface variation, the limits are given by essentially these, these second order features and by the presence or absence of the category in the particularization of the extended projection in a particular language or actually above a particular category. Oh, there is one other one, actually, now that I think about it. Another issue, which I didn't really spend enough time on in the book, I think, is the extent to which a functional category can label a root. So far, we've been talking about extended projections in the classical Grimshaw sense, the Grimshavian sense, which is that essentially you've got the extended projection of N and of V and of A. Okay? But one thing I allow in the book is that certain roots can be labeled with something which is much higher in an extended projection than just N, A, or V. So the analysis I gave, for example, uh, English modal auxiliaries, is that we've got a root like may or can or something like that. And that probably was a full verb at some point. But what English has ended up doing, and this is a historical change rather than an evolutionary change now, is it's decided to, to essentially rootify a functional category like modality with that verb. So you get that verb then sort of essentially starting off this extended projection somewhere in the middle. And that's how I deal with essentially what are often dealt with as auxiliaries taking DP complements. I actually have the auxiliary as the head taking a VP specifier. So that's another way in which languages can vary because I would guess that the different languages might choose to rootify different functional categories. That opens up an interesting perspective on grammaticalization as well. Grammaticalization as rootification. Exactly, yes. Which isn't in the book anywhere, but I, I gave a series of lectures in the Himalayas last year uh, as one of these uh, LISM courses where um, people got very excited about the use of light verbs in Indo-Aryan languages and how this might be a way of thinking about light verbs, especially in historical change, uh, where the light verb stops being a main verb and then becomes rootified or, or rather the category, say, of, you know, certain kinds of categories, functional categories become rootified with these light verbs. And then that sort of flips around the structure and gives you essentially a head final structure for these. I didn't really pursue it any further than that, but I think there are, there are potential uh, research questions in there about whether this makes predictions about ordering effects in uh, light verb constructions or not. And I don't know what they are yet, because I haven't spent time thinking about that. Right, thanks. Well, now I think, because we're running out of time, there's lots of other things I'd like to ask you, but for now I'll just ask, what are you working on at the moment, and what are you planning to work on next, now that this book has been on the shelves for a while? I said before the book didn't have as, as much in it as I really wanted, and part of the reason for that is I knew I was going to become head of school, of a very large school uh, here at Queen Mary, and I knew that that would put paid to my research time for a while. So I, I worked very hard to get the book out and done, partly because I knew I wouldn't have a great deal of time for other bits of research. However, luckily I have amazing co-authors. And so I've been working recently with uh, Jennifer Culbertson, who's currently at George Mason University. And she is a linguist who uses artificial language learning experiments. And we've been applying artificial language learning methodology to looking at actually some of the questions that we were talking about earlier on, which is, you know, the ordering of things in the functional sequence. So we just had a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which looks at things like these four green balls, those kind of th examples I, I was talking about earlier on, and tries to see whether the way that we represent these internally is via just linear transitions between the elements or, as every good minimalist would think, the structural relationships between the elements. And we have some good evidence, I think, that there has to be the latter. So I'm quite interested in, in taking 
that work, which we did on English speakers and applying it to uh, speakers of other languages which have different kinds of orders. So this general issue of how structural hierarchy maps onto linear order is uh, is one that's been, that I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, of looking at in a different kind of way um, with Jennifer's help in terms of these artificial language learning experiments. So that's one thing I've been looking at. I'm, I'm also still doing this work with sociolinguists, which uh, involves attempting to deal with this question of individual level variability in grammar. That's essentially, you know, what kind of options are available to an individual? How are they modeled theoretically? And how do we as minimalist tacticians, how do we have anything to say about the kind of patterns that sociolinguists find in this kind of variation? So I have a paper coming out in an OUP volume which takes this syntax of substance kind of framework and says, well, what we do is, with this is we, we take the root and the various bits of, of functional structure that's built above it via the external projections. And then we say, actually, during the learning process, you don't just have the verb plus one set of functional categories above it. Perhaps you have a bunch of them, right? Perhaps you have different functional categories, remember the same ones slightly differently decorated uh, with second order features above a root. And then then we have essentially those roots plus that sequence of functional categories are phonologically identified as lexical items that can be just, they're, they're like compiled lexical items. They're like, they're things which are sort of, they're compiled into our grammar and then we use those rather than using the fundamental, uh, you know, merge and uh, agree type mechanisms that we have that we use during the acquisition of our grammar. So then, although those are still available, merge and agree and all that kind of stuff, we've also got a set of heuristic compiled bits of structure that we can just use online. And if that's true, then that gives us a way of trying to pull together the minimalist syntax idea with the kind of things that sociolinguists have been working on, and also potentially to begin to look at how this might impact on processing as well. So there's a bunch of those kind of more general things that I would like to look at next. Oh, and I'd quite like to write a popular book about why minimalism is a good way of thinking about language. But these are all things for once I stop being head of school, which will be in September. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Well, in the meantime, it's great to see syntactic theory being brought together with questions from psycholinguistics and from sociolinguistics. For now, I'm just going to have to say thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. It was a really great pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. I'm George Walton, and I've been talking to David Adger about his book, A Syntax of Substance. On behalf of New Books in Language, thank you very much for listening.